Thanks for tuning in to LinkUp360 podcast. This is Jay Baker, Head of Industry at Link Group. In today's episode, we're going to be playing back highlights from our recent webcast, where our investor relations team at DF King and Orient Capital, along with their guest speakers, presented their review of the 2020 AGM season. Their conversation covered results and highlights across various UK and EU markets, and they also look ahead to corporate governance trends expected for the 2021 season, among other key topics concerning the board. Now that's all you'll hear from me in this episode. Oh, don't forget, you can download the full report that was published to coincide with this webcast. Just go to the link in the description. I'm now going to hand you over to Alison Owers, Global CEO and Director of Orient Capital and DF King, who will introduce you to the panel of experts. I hope you enjoy listening to what they have to say. I know I will. Bye for now. Welcome everyone to the AHEAD um, event today, which is the fifth time we are launching our DF King season review. And it's the third time we've been working with the head team to launch this as one of these events. So we're really pleased that we were able to do this today. So the findings will be presented by my esteemed colleague, David Chase Lopes, who's the managing director of the proxy part of our DF King team. David has overseen hundreds of proxy solicitation campaigns. More recently, our team have been very heavily involved in David personally in activist events and corporate governance advisory work. So he's a great person to be running this through today. When we move through to the panel session, we will be joined by an incredible panel. So we will have on our panel Maureen Beresford, who is head of corporate governance and reporting the, uh, the FRC. Maureen was one of the um, people involved in working on the UK Corporate Governance Code, so um, we're, we're in safe hands on our regulatory view today. We'll also be joined by Sophie Lelias, who is founder and president of Leader Exchange. She's also an independent um, board director, having served on, on numerous boards, so will, I'm sure, give us a very strong board view and has got some very, very good views on ESG, which I think will be a recurring theme that we will be exploring um, later as the session moves forward. Lastly, um, we will be joined by Sasha Sedan, who's the Director of Investment Stewardship at Elgin. Sasha was um, voted uh, you know, one of the top, top 30 people to watch in, in the city of London, most influential in 2016 by the Financial Times. So I'm sure he undoubtedly will have some very interesting things to say and gives us our investor view for the session. So without further ado, let me hand over to uh, David Chase Lopes, who will run through our key findings from the report today. David, over to you. Thank you very much, Alison. Uh, thank you to Maureen, Sophie and Sasha. Um, before we get started, I'd like just to go over some of the key findings that you'll find in our uh, 2020 AGM review. Uh, and what we've learned. I think the big lesson for 2020 has been the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact and how we've accelerated towards um, a stakeholder model, as well as a real question about how boards have uh, been able to meet this challenge of systemic risk. We also have seen that uh, as an effort to respond to the pandemic, Uh, the move towards a virtual AGM structure, which uh, had a series of practical challenges that were usually met by most issuers, as well as an ability to keep uh, and even improve participation levels overall that you can see on the slide, slightly higher than before. 
and corporate governance continues to be the focus uh, despite the challenges of the pandemic. And uh, while these uh, subjects are the same as we've seen in other years around uh, remuneration as well as uh, board representation, issues are becoming more and more demanding in terms of uh, the transparency that's provided to them. And uh, that leads into effectively the question of where we are with board composition, not only skills, but diversity and how society is impacting that. We noticed that of the three of the top FTSE 100 groups that got uh, less than 80% support last season on uh, renewals of, of board members, it was all related to the overboarding challenge, as well as more generally, we'd say the last big learn is that uh, corporate preparedness for companies is a real important subject because activism is here to stay. So without uh, going into further detail on this that's described in our our review. I'd like to open the conversation with our three guests and maybe each one of you in a very broad sense could just give um, a highlight of what you think the big learns were for 2020. Uh, and then we'll go to uh, the, the panel discussion. Maybe we could start with Maureen. Hi, uh, thank you. Yeah, a very interesting season, I think. Uh, the big learns for me are, you know, we, we managed to get through the season with the AGMs, which was a challenge to everybody. Um, I think that stakeholder engagement and, and ensuring that, that stakeholders are involved is an, an interesting subject that we need to think about further. Making sure that all stakeholders and the workforce are engaged was something that we looked at at the FRC and will be commenting on further. And I think it's really important that, that we talk more about transparency and we talk about risk, all of the things that, that, that David has kind of adhered to, and I hope we can talk about them much more as we go through this seminar. Sophie, do you have something you'd like to add? Yes. I mean, more generally, it's just the sharp market decline uh, on the corporate side, uh, and that required the companies to rapidly respond and repurpose their operations and adapt their supply chain. I think this is really unprecedented. Um, and while the crisis disrupted industries um, all over the world, um, employees uh, felt these uh, social and economic shocks the most. And I think that, I think, is really the big takeaway. Um, and that led to a change in conversation with investors and issuers, focusing increasingly on human capital management, on supply chain issues, as well as the financial health of companies. And to better assess all these risks, I think the engagement with investors uh, and stakeholders and at the AGMs also, but particularly with the assessing of these um, human capital risks, uh, investors are asking for more information. Those are really the uh, key takeaways for me. Nasha? Morning, everyone. So... 2020 AGM season. I think it was about getting through it, surviving, and that's something that companies did. Investors helped them by looking at the 2020 AGM season, which it should do, looking at what they'd done from the year before. So it made it slightly easier, but that's going to be very different when we talk about going forward. But in terms of that, of course, we were looking at how they'd done probably most of the time before they'd done anything in this terrible time in COVID. The next stadium season will be where we're looking at how they've done things during COVID rather than just the practicalities of an AGM, which are obviously a nightmare for companies and for investors. Thank you, Sasha. And that's a nice way to look, um, to, to segue to our first question. Obviously, one of the biggest changes in 2020 was the advent of virtual AGMs. And perhaps we can start with Maureen to sort of ask a question of how virtual do you think the AGM season will be in 2021? Maureen? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it, I think it has to go more virtual. I think in the UK, as we've pointed out in our report, you know, it's been difficult for companies. Uh, not all companies were able to move to virtual because of the uh, ambiguity of the law and their um, their articles. But I think. Um, you know, we've got time now. Um, you know, company secretaries will be thinking about this. I'm certain from from the end of the last um, AGM, they'll be thinking about how on earth they're going to manage next year. Um, I think it's about being prepared. I think it's about embracing technology. I think it's about trying to work with all of your um, stakeholders and your investors and shareholders and retail shareholders. I think. I think companies need to to be mindful, you know, that, that everybody has a vote. We had a problem in the UK with, you know, retail shareholders not always having access to the AGM at the level that they were used to doing. Um, and so I think all companies, whatever your size, you know your stakeholder base, you've got to think about how you can engage effectively with all those investors and stakeholders so that they they feel truly valued and truly able to comment on on the company and and work together to kind of you know promote their what they want to see and to help the company get through this this really difficult time you know um the frc we've done some work on this we put out our research it was all about we've given you tips we've given some help we've talked about being prepared thinking about how you can engage thinking about how you can use the technology that you might, we've all got used to you know we wouldn't have been doing this seminar this this webinar a year ago as we've already said now you know you can use these skills to to kind of engage much better and think about being innovative you know think about having maybe a stakeholder event before the vote you know, maybe a week before something like that something that you've not done before so I'm I'm, I'm suggesting, you know, think outside the box, transparency and openness. And that's that's my kind of takeaway on this point. Sasha, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, let's let's start with the basics. We want to be able to have AGMs similar to how we've had them in the past. But I think we know that's not going to be the case for a period of time. So we've been very much supporting the hybrid model or the virtual ones, especially at the moment. But I do think it's a good example of now that we've got this terrible time let's start thinking about how we can make these better because we all know companies say you lot don't turn up the big investors the small ones come along they only ask certain sort of questions well we've got to try and make that better so we're working with quite a few people at the moment we're working with a few companies who've done a good job in the first ones we're working with some who spent a lot of money and then had no questions and we're trying to get how can we get this model to work better because this is a way of explaining your company and it's great when you've got all the board directors whether they're all in person or if they were just on the zoom call like this it's a fantastic way of trying to explain and articulate what the board is doing so i think we can do much better as maureen said but i do think very importantly we are helping companies but there's something going on in australia at the moment they said allowing virtual forever and we're like whoa we've got to be careful we've got to allow investors in a company to be able to ask a question and the problem with virtual is you can sort of have technology and ask a question but you could also get I'm not, I don't want to answer that one, or I can block it, and that is not right. And one of the great things, and I see it from my own corporate, I do the AGM rehearsal every year with my board of directors, and they're worried. They get worried. All directors get worried. They don't know what they're going to get asked. That's good. That is how it should be. You don't know what you're going to get asked, and it should be anything. Now, of course, some of the time it's complete madness, but that's the that's the bucks that you take. So I think it's very important, and I think we really want to make sure that AGMs survive, and hopefully we can improve on them. 
Thank you, Sasha. Sophie, do you want to add anything to this point about the AGMs? I just think the, the for in some countries, it was a whole regulatory issue. So I think a lot of companies uh, did this a bit in the late in the process. And I would agree with uh, what Maureen said, uh, as well as Sasha. One is that um, it will only get better, in my view, and it has to get better. Um, I also believe that um, the physical engagement, the personal engagement at the AGM is important, uh, not just uh, for the institutional investors, but employee shareholders as well. I think that's really a critical time for everybody to meet. And it's a way to um, get a, a real sense of, um, of how people feel in the room. So if, if it's possible to uh, going forward to combine both the physical and the virtual, I think the technology can enhance the value of a shareholder meeting as opposed to uh, reduce um, the ability to engage. Thank you for that, Sophie. Sasha, moving to you uh, and your work around uh, ESG topics, including societal ones, what do you feel that today's state of the ESG is in a post-pandemic world? This is, let's go back before the pandemic, if we, if we can, I wish we could. People were already, our clients, our 6 million retail customers, our 3,000 pension fund, institutional pension fund, they were already demanding, what are you doing about some of these issues? They were asking us about a lot of these and companies were starting to get much better at that. The phrase section 172, oh my God, last year, do you remember how many times that was used? That was before the pandemic. But obviously with this pandemic, it has brought ESG even higher up the agenda. The phrase companies are inextricably linked to the societies in which they operate has never been more pertinent. And that is why I think these areas are going to be very important when we go forward. And I was just going to quote Mark Carney in The Economist recently, who said, all this amounts to as a stakeholder capitalism and a test of it. When it's over, companies will be judged by what they did during the war, how they treated their employees, their suppliers and their customers, by who shared and who hoarded. And I think that is exactly the point of this. We're in this unbelievable time. Governments are stepping up. We're having to take dividend cuts, quite rightly, we're supporting dividend cuts where companies need, but then companies have to take some pain as well. And so there is a big debate here, but this is something that was happening before COVID. It's just exacerbated it. Thanks for that, Sasha. Sophie, maybe you can give your perspective from both your research as well as what you see as a board member. So uh, absolutely. So one is, I think, one of the key things with the growing of uh, the ESG uh, engagement and focus on ESG uh, more generally is timing with growing academic research. Um, and that timing with the research is not only because data is available, which is that companies are disclosing it, and but more importantly that it's not just about the G and the ESG, but about the E and the S. And I think that I think is really, really important because when you can show that the E and the S generate uh, value in terms of financial returns and have an impact on stock price, that gets investors' attention. Um, the second thing is the, what I call the formal entry of the S and the ESG uh, engagement. And going back to Sasha's point, um, for years, investors were asking about, and particularly uh, SRI-type investors, but also public pension fund investors, were asking about um, the S, uh, the whole social component, human capital management. And companies have been reticent to share information. I mean, I did quite a bit of research on gender diversity, and only two years ago, the number of companies that wouldn't disclose how many women are in management was really 
quite staggering. So what we're seeing here is much more disclosure on the human capital management issues um, that are directly impacted by the uh, COVID crisis in particular, and that's not going to go away. That engagement on human capital is not going to go away. Why? Because talent is the, without people, there's no business, and we're seeing that with the pandemic. Um, and, and studies have also shown that if you lose talent, uh, you lose money, and if you gain talent, uh, you gain money. And I think that I think is really important. Um, and the key focuses I've seen directly in terms of engagement have been the welfare of staff, how companies plan to get people and all their people back to work in a safe manner and going forward, um, and how the board exercised uh, management oversight on these human capital tent, uh, human capital issues. And I think that really is what I would um, just kind of in a nutshell mention. Thank you for that, Sophie. Maureen, do you have something you'd like to add on the ESG part of this sort of post-pandemic world we live in? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with Sasha. You know, we were moving that way before the pandemic. You know, the, the corporate governance code was putting culture and purpose at the heart part of the, the company and, and governance. And I think what's happened now is the pandemic has really brought this to the fore. You know, it's the importance of the stakeholders, of the, of the employees. It's about how social issues impact on the company and, and the economy and where the, the company sits within that. You know, I think it, it's made us think about society and that purpose of the company and what, you know, what we want to see going forward is the company's thinking about their purpose, their culture, how they engage with stakeholders and shareholders. Uh, one thing that does worry me is, you know, we've seen companies working really, really well with their employees, engaging. And I do worry as we have to, companies have to make difficult decisions, for example, you know, redundancies, et cetera, that goodwill might be lost and there might be some pulling apart of the, of the closeness that, that companies work together. So I worry about that going forward and how companies will deal with that. Very, very useful points, Maureen. And that's really just to the societal, so many societal environmental subjects have, have surged forward in 2020 because of the pandemic and this movement towards corporate purpose. Um, where do you think investors should focus when they tell their ESG story? And maybe we can start with Sasha. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all tied into what we've just been talking about. But let's just start with and the FRC, quite rightly, also looking at asset managers and our stewardship code and our responsibilities. And you know as well as I do, there's a lot of greenwashing out there. And we all say we care about this, but we've not, asked, not everyone's asking Sophie the right questions all the time. And I think this is definitely going to be the case that we're going to have to step up to the plate ourselves. And I think that's already happening. And I think that's going to be the trend for AGMs. People are going to take these things into account more. So whatever the trends have been, I think you'll get even more of this going forward. But just think about it. If you said Section 172 is important and you put a purpose statement out in 2020, well, we're going to be going, well, you said that you care about your employees. Well, what have you done? How have you done that? Why don't you pay the living wage when most of your rivals do? That's going to, financial inequality is going to be one of those areas. You've cut the dividend, you've taken taxpayers' money, and yet you've, down, you've downgraded bonuses by 20%. Does that make sense? There's going to be those kinds of questions. How is, how is that le linking in? And you put a new bonus scheme in that hasn't taken into account the shares of halved. All sorts of things are going to be happening. Supply chain. We, just, we saw it in the first few weeks when Adidas, one of the most profitable companies, didn't pay in Germany, didn't pay it for rent. 
it wasn't the investors that had a go at Adidas, it was the media and the public. Adidas, within three weeks, started paying its landlords. And I want to know, there are some very big companies, high-profile companies at the moment, that have money and can do it and are not paying their, their fair share. They will be absolutely lambasted, I think. And tax, last one for me, we're taking taxpayers' money everywhere. Well, shouldn't companies be pr promising and showing that they're paying their fair share of tax back? And if they're not, it's not because of just I care about this. I can assure you governments around the world are going to say, how am I going to get my balance sheet back in order? They're going to come for companies with a low tax rate. So you're going to have to try and understand that and explain that. And you should do that earlier rather than later. Thanks for that, Sasha. Sophie, what would you like to add um, on this topic? I mean, Sasha laid out, I think, all the key and very difficult issues that are going to be that companies have to face, their boards have to face. Um, and that investors are care about. And I think that's, you know, companies have to hear that. Um, what, I, what I agree with, and I'm uh, adding to also what Maureen just said, is the whole notion of fairness and the employee fairness. I think fairness is really going to come across as one of the key themes in engagement. Um, it's a very complex situation. Remuneration is complex. ISS just came out with their new remuneration policy uh, um, guidelines, if you like. But the reality is um, no one really knows how things are. So I think it's going to be very much a case-by-case -case basis. But to go back to what Sasha said, the notion of purpose, purpose is a commitment to act. And so companies need to show what action plan they have rolled out and deployed against that commitment. And then on top of that, show that there are some results and share those results and show that they're tracking those results over time. And as we talk about ESG and we incorporate ESG and remuneration plans, the key issue is really going to be finding out whether those uh, remuneration metrics that are ESG related are aligned with that kind with that strategy and with that purpose and that mission. And I think that's something that requires conversation and engagement for sure, but more importantly, clear explanation of policies and actions um, by the company and disclosure by the company in very clear and simple language. That's how people understand the thinking. And I think one of the things that companies have a tendency to do less is really explain their thinking. It's kind of like, you know, legislative action. Well, when you look at legislative history, you understand how people got to where they got to and the decisions they make. So explaining that process, the philosophy, the process, and, um, and showing how it's aligned with the long-term strategy of the company Going to the other points that were raised, um, tax, totally agree with that. I think, you know, a lot of the questions we've seen and, and a lot of the companies have made um, decisions, whether it's on uh, dividend or on employee uh, layoffs or on compensation, really linked to, again, going back to tax on the issue of fairness. So it's taxpayer money, but it's also the fairness of keeping people employed. And I think these are these are going to be very complicated conversations, and to get ahead of those conversations requires clear, simple explanation of what was done, how it was done, why it was done, and why that's important to investors and to the future long-term growth of the company. Very, very insightful, Sophie. Maureen, from your perspective, where do you think uh, investors are, lo um, are looking for the focus right now on ESG? I think Sasha and Sophia set out things really, really well. I'd add to that, um, you know, 
uh, the uh, pay gap as well is something that that companies will be looking at. But I, I want to pick up on this purpose and culture and 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 fairness point that Sophie made. And uh, you know, my team has spent the last three months looking at uh, annual reports from last year because we're doing a review of them as part of the FRC work. Um, and we were struck by the amount of boilerplate reporting, the amount of companies that, that talk about the process that they've gone through for engagement, for dealing with certain issues, talking about culture, not even monitoring culture. And it's this point, you know, where are the boards making decisions? What information is going to the board and how it is impacting on that, on that long term success of a company. Um, and the, the story that we get in at the moment is this is happening, our process is in place, but it seems to fizzle out. You know, lots of good things being told uh, in the annual reports, but what is the impact? Tell the story of the company. That's what we as regulators want to know. That's what investors want to know. Every company is different. You know, there's not one size fits all. There's not one issue that's more important to, to every company over another one. It's different. And you've got to be transparent as a company. You've got to explain that and give examples that everybody understands to show the impact of what you've done over the last year and the impact of COVID and the impact of, of, of working with all these important stakeholders. Thank you so much, Maureen. Um, that sort of leads us to another question about the pandemic. And one of the things we see with companies is that they need to demonstrate to investors that they can manage ultimately systemic risk. And sadly, pan the pandemic, COVID-19, is, we believe, a clear example of a, of a systemic risk. And we're curious to see what themes boards should be trying to explain to their investors around the pandemic during the AGM season in 2021 to demonstrate that the board has been uh, where it should be and has been doing the right things at the right time uh, in relation to uh, a crisis that's end really isn't clear yet. Um, maybe we could start with Sophie. <laughs> sure. So I think all of these issues, to me, at, 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 a, at a board level and more generally, but also from an investor's perspective, it's really understanding if the board is um, looking holistically um, at the risks, the company's risks, and whether ESG is integrated in that company strategy. So um, first thing will be, in my view, the materiality assessments and the risk maps, and really looking at those risk maps, whether they're both financial and extra financial. Um, the second thing will be um, whether any of the materiality maps, the past maps have to be revised and updated to integrate new risk factors. I think that's, um, and if some of the risks that they that have occurred um, weren't on the map or were perhaps on a lower spectrum of the map in terms of uh, urgency and impact, um, what revisions need to be made and what are the action plans to make those revisions um, and deploy uh, for the company going forward and what processes, if any, had to be adapted. And I think this is something that, again, going back to the previous conversation or the previous question, is really about explaining. Um, and to go to Maureen's point, and I really want to underscore, is that comp each company is different and each company is going to have a different way of approaching things. And if companies use boilerplate language, they can't show that difference. Um, they can't explain to investors what it is that is really specific to them and how they and why these decisions are the right decisions for that company. And that's how you really get the investment uh, support. But the process, 
So the, engage, the process in terms of assessing the map, integrating ESG and the financial impact, um, and ensuring that the oversight and the risk management internal control process is adapted and adjusted, particularly in this COVID environment, um, is something that is clearly at the board level in terms of oversight. And it's a story that needs to be told to the investors coming forward for the next AGM, in my view. Thank you, Sophie. Maureen, maybe you could give your sense of what you're seeing with your with with um, with your research and work. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Sophie covered that well. But what I'd like to add to that is that you know, COVID wasn't planned for, as we all know. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, companies should have a crisis planning or disaster planning in place, and, and they should have seen through this whether that worked or not. And I, what I expect is that a real kind of thoughtful process to look at all those risks to see if those risks have really been captured properly um, in, in a company's annual report or their thinking, if they thought it they can look at what happened at COVID and they can apply that across the piece. And so I'd, I'd expect lots of risk maps, as Sophie called them, to change uh, and to be um, updated because, you know, COVID has taught us that there'll be short-term, long-term, medium-term issues around this risk. And what we've seen over the last few years that I've been looking at annual reports is that risk seldom change that companies are reporting. They're in there year after year, they sit there uh, and, 90% of the time they say no change or a significant change here and there to that risk and the mitigation. I think COVID has taught us that, that risks are live and risks can change overnight. And I, I'm not sure that, that boards were fully aware of that. And we've seen that in practice now. And I think that that risk section and those thoughts around risks that, co that companies have to do will be much more focused on what does this really mean? How will this impact us? And what can we do to kind of be much more ready for this in the future? Thank you, Maureen. Sasha, what would you like to add to this point? Well, we've, we've said a lot of this, but just to add a couple of points that hopefully are slightly different to help. First of all, you know, why did we talk about for years, Elgin and others, but Elgin specifically talk about diversity? Why did we want diverse boards? We wanted diverse boards and we very much want diverse boards because they can think out the box and they can do different things. And funnily enough, the companies that have had these different kinds of boards, even not just boards, advisory committees and other things, they have managed to step up better than boards that haven't got those different skill sets on. So, secondly, we used to talk about overboarding and we used to get lambasted by companies and oh, but that person's brilliant. Well, they might be brilliant, but they can't be on seven boards, and especially when seven of them are all having emergency board meetings, they just can't physically do it. So these kinds of debates are there for a reason. They were there before COVID, and I think these things will need to be examined. And then lastly, you know, I do think of this, and some companies I'd not only feel sorry for, we've supported dividend cuts. We've put 300 million of Elgin money into them to try and re renovate them and do that. But how could you be on five times debt to EBITDA before this crisis? How could you have geared yourself up so much? and have nothing left so that if something went wrong, you haven't. Maybe it's because you had earnings per share as your LTIP, and you were trying to gear the point to that. That is not long-term sustainable value, and you are now suffering on that, and so are your shareholders. And I think you have to demonstrate where you've taken, where's your rainy day? Where has your balance sheet been on a rainy day? Some companies have got a great story on that, but some have not done that and have geared up to the eyeballs. And I think they will be the ones that will have a hard story at the next AGM. Thank you, uh, Sasha. Uh, Sophie, I think you wanted to add a point on what Maureen said. 
Yeah, both Maureen and Sasha. So two, one is on the um, what Maureen had mentioned earlier um, in terms of um, some of the actions that the companies take. And I think two things, there's the internal, external, and what we found, found in this COVID in terms of materiality, the whole materiality assessment is that we've seen uh, a lot of uh, engagement um, by companies, both internally with their employees doing things they've never done. I think that has to be communicated very, very clearly, but also externally uh, with a lot of their stakeholders and supporting stakeholders, particularly uh, organizations that had uh, dried up in funding um, and, and in some cases uh, providing uh, support for research and other cases uh, providing for meals, um, in other cases equipment. And I think those two angles in terms of the um, systemic risk, stakeholders can be a systemic risk. And so by supporting your stakeholders, really important to, um, to show that there is that level of engagement. And the second point, which just to add on to uh, Sasha's uh, point on the board skill set, I think the whole materiality risk map, once you finish that, or revise that materiality risk map. And, and again, you might not just make it materiality, it might be materiality, meaningful, um, and then and meaningful, not just uh, the materiality in the strictly uh, investor sense. Then the key thing, the next step is really to look at making sure that you have the skill set on the board um, that matches that map. And I think that that goes to the whole diversity uh, issue that uh, Sasha was referring to, and it's the diversity of skill set, the diversity of uh, experience um, that allows the company to have a, a board that effectively oversees a very broad um, series, both of risks and opportunities for long-term growth. Thanks for that. Um, that kind of ties into another question that comes in every year uh, around this time and during the season, but is also has a real specific to COVID around remuneration and in particular what happens to uh, variable remuneration when everything uh, was so greatly modified because of COVID. And when we think about remuneration policies and reports in relation to adjustments that might be made around variable compensation, do you see this as a topic that's going to be quite important in 2021? And where do you think the challenges will be and why? I think if we look to Sasha first for some insight that you have, it, that would be probably a great place to, to begin. Oh, well, look, uh, I'm, I've just spoken to the chairman of an industrial company that's adjusted their LTIP strike prices. And I look at it and I think, are they, where is that sense of purpose? What have they done? They're basically saying it's all tough out there, so we're reducing all the hard tar targets. And, of course, the shares will then pay out when they do that on a small, if the shares bounce, if we have got, let's hope we have a vaccine and the markets roof it in those areas that haven't in industrial, say, and the shares go up a lot. They just get paid out. What kind of explanation after everything someone in that firm is doing that doesn't doesn't link up with the purpose or the section 170 or any of the other things so they go to and they get oh well, what price would you accept why would we are the investors you sh you have a chairman of remco you need to decide that you have to make that decision our job is to hold you to account not negotiate what strike price you should be using for your share I have no idea what's going to happen in the next three years. I really hope things get a hell of a lot better for all of us. But I think it is up to the companies, and some companies are doing a brilliant job at holding discretion. 
some companies have volunt voluntarily reduced stuff. So the difference is huge. And I'm afraid you're going to get noticed quite a lot. And if you thought you might get a 20% vote against in the old days, that will be 40 or 50% going forward, I would suggest, if you don't take this seriously. And don't ask your shareholders what you should do. You should come up with a plan yourself. You are paid on the board. We will help, and we always help. We've got pay principles. But you should be doing that. And link it to what your employees would think. I mean, that was the first thing I'd say to every Remco chair. What would your employee on the shop floor or in the factory say about the fact that you've taken a 10% haircut but you've adjusted all the L-tips and they're going to pay out 500%. Would they think it's all right? Because if they think it's all right, I would think it's all right. That's 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 a key point that we uh, try to get across as best as possible. Sophie, from your experience on boards and looking at it as an investor, what do you think um, would be common sense approaches to making sure the investors see the alignment with the uh, variable comp in 2021? So one is uh, going back to, I, I really believe in philosophy. So um, really going back to the remuneration philosophy and understanding what it is that we're trying to compensate. I think that particularly in this COVID crisis and in the backdrop of this COVID crisis. Um, the second is again, ensuring it that it's tied to long-term strategy and sustainable. It has to be a long-term sustainable strategy and integrates some of the key factors, um, particularly uh, ESG financial, um, but also ESG. Um, and that it, um, and then I would particularly um, look at the level of fairness. I think the the fairness issue is going to be the issue um, uh, going forward. And so fairness will be integrating the uh, question of you know did the company take in a lot of taxpayer money or not. I mean going back to all the points that Sasha raised, um, and after that it's the board's decision to decide you know the board decides really what it wants to do and how it wants to compensate and reward um one thing that's important is looking at um at a board level is really looking at the challenges that the companies faced uh the disruptions and sacrifices that were made by everyone within the organization management but as um as well as all the employees and when you factor all those elements in and you come up with a compensation package that you feel comfortable with, that you are, that you think is fair, and that incentivizes management appropriately, um, and that conversation happens, there's generally an alignment um, with investor support, um, just because it's something that has to be clearly explained. Um, and then after that, people can argue whether it's too much or too little, or, but fundamentally, the process has to be about integrating um, all of these elements of the issues of fairness, the issue of sacrifice that's made, particularly in this particular context, the, the issue of whether taxpayer money is used, um, the issue of the financial health of the company, which I mentioned at the onset. I think this is one thing that we, um, that many investors were surprised to see after unprecedented growth that some companies did not have money for, you know, save money for a rainy day. So these are really important issues um, and that going forward um, that we have a way to retain talent. Again, I think this is, like we said, it's going to be unprecedented in terms of there are going to be some changes. And because there are going to be a lot of changes, it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. And if you want your package to be um, accepted and um, by your investor base, then fundamentally um, it needs to have clear explanation of what it is and the targets that have been achieved. 
financial and extra financial. Thanks for that insight. Sophie, uh, Sasa, you, you, I think you wanted just to chime in quickly on this. Just to give some practical help as well. I would expect companies, not just the words, if they were to come to us and say, we are, all our employees have shares, not just Savers Union. We've just seen Dixon's car phone, we've seen Kingfisher, we've seen BT give um, lower grades, give them some shares in the company to get, em get employee ownership. That would help to show that you are all in it together and say, explain why you are a living wage employer or why you're not and why you aren't, because that would help again. So come prepared for those kinds of answers rather than how much we're taking off the executive team, because you'll get a lot of help from the investors if you show what you've done for the rest of the organisation. And, and Maureen, around REM, I'm sure it's a question that, you're, that you are looking at every year uh, in your work. Yeah, I mean, we look at REM every year and, and, you know, in the code this year, we put we put engagement with the workforce uh, into to the REM part of um, the, the FRC uh, corporate governance code. And um, just one bit of information, you know, we've done our, our uh, analysis again this year, as I mentioned earlier. And although many companies talked about having an eye to workforce um, pay policies when they were setting their REM uh, policies, not one single company that we looked at said that they'd explain their REM policy after making a decision on it to their workforce. They'd taken it into account, they said, but they'd not taken the time to sit down and explain to their workforce why those levels of remuneration were being paid and why they were appropriate. And I think companies have got an opportunity now to do that. You know, I wrote down discretion in an answer to this, this question, and, and Sasha's already mentioned it. You know, discretion should be in all pay policies at the minute. And companies should be looking at that and working out what is the right thing to do. There's a lot of latitude. Yes, we understand there are contracts, but, you know, we're in unprecedented times and companies need to make unprecedented decisions that work for everybody and work for everybody in that long term. And they should be taking decisions that are creative, that think about outside of the box and don't go to that regurgitation of the words that you use every time to explain your own policies. Think about the impact on stakeholders, the environment, and how do you kind of build that into your company culture if you, you know, do what Sasha said at the beginning, just, you know, rejig the targets to make, to make the benefits uh, come as they were expected. Great. Um, that's sort of, I mean, we can stick with Maureen. Um, and one of the other things that we've highlighted is about overboarding and availability during a crisis. And... In a post-COVID world, what do you believe is the reasonable number of board seats for an independent director and why? Um, I don't think you can put a figure a figure on that. As we said already, everybody is different. I just would like you to. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, the code says that you shouldn't have more than uh, one, one position if, in a FTSE 100. So, you know, but I, I think, you know, we this has shown, this the crisis has shown that You've got to be prepared as a board member to roll your uh, sleeves up and get involved at times of crisis. And I think everybody who's sat on a, vault, on a board should be looking at themselves now and say, did I do the best for every company that I'm involved with? And if that answer is no, then there should be a lot of resignations from boards going forwards because 
you know, it, it's a serious post. It's important that you do it right. And it's important that you give the time to that company and everybody you invest in that company and everybody that benefits from that company, whether that be financially or socially. And if you can't hand on heart as an individual say that you had that time to do that, then, you know, you should just have the one position. And, and that, that is my view. I think I'd also like to pick up the point that, that Sasha made about um, diversity. Uh, and again, going back to our work, we see all the time that, that boards say we believe in diversity. We want a diverse board, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then they say we promote on merit. Well, of course you promote on merit. Everybody promotes on merit. And if that was the case, why aren't there more, more diverse candidates moving through the, the chain to those senior board positions? Uh, you know, and our view is that and until companies begin to look much wider than the traditional pool for fishing in for, for candidates, then we're not going to get the diversity of, of individuals, whether that be skills, experience, backgrounds, whatever. And we're going to end up with people overboarding because that companies continue to fish in that same pool and, and to not insist that those organizations working from them give them diverse talent the talent's out there it needs to be brought there and then once we've got more people that are able to sit on boards then this issue of board overboarding should begin to decrease well sophie i think you wanted to add something yeah, so just um, on the issue of employees, I think a lot of many markets, particularly in continental Europe, have um, one or more employees on the board and actually involved in uh, and participating in compensation uh, committees. And I think that is actually um, something that's really helpful to be uh, in, in, in my experience, um, because you have that insight and that dialogue that um, is quite direct uh, and, uh, and, and useful because you're always making sure that um, everything is explained and that you get the feedback um, uh, ongoing. I think that to me was really the, what I, the point I, I wanted to make. And then the second point um, going to Maureen is when you look at the whole uh, board overboarding issue, there's really a difference between an SME company and a very complex uh, company that has you know, 50,000 employees. So 100 versus 50,000 clearly is not the same kind of uh, commitment, whether it's four meetings or 12 meetings. And I think that's something to, to take into consideration, um, whether people are overboarded or not. And at the end of the day, you know, the annual report of 2020 is going to show which directors were present and which were not. Um, I think, you know, that's really what, what it comes down to whether it's committee attendance or board attendance. And I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, I know many companies that have had, uh, some companies actually had board meetings every week for a couple of months and others had a board meeting uh, every month. But clearly there was an acceleration of the number of board meetings. And so the, I think investors and, and board members themselves, once they look at um, the results of their attendance rate, um, will make you know, certain decisions in terms of whether they, uh, they, they can continue if this pandemic and these crises continues. Because what happened with one company happened with all of their companies they served on. That's, the crisis was really systemic throughout on all their boards. So you multiply that by you know, 100 meetings, I think it's pretty hard to attend all of them. And, and Sasha, do you think that there'll be much tolerance for that incredible person who's just got to be on the board this year? Um, much less. I've seen a lot of our rivals getting much stricter on their overboarding policies. Um, and even though they'll turn up for board meetings, people have turned up a lot. So the stats might, they might have ticked the box that they managed to get there. 
have they read all the documents? Have they been able to contribute to that? I really want to know what the board effectiveness reviews say. And again, I don't want boilerplate board effectiveness if they managed well in this pandemic. I mean, that does why pay £50,000 to get those words? I mean, what is the point? We need much better things than that. And what are you going to do better from having this review? So, so no, I think people are going to take this much more seriously. I agree. Um, we want to switch gears for our final sort of panel question about another subject that did not go away despite uh, COVID, which is shareholder activism. And part of shareholder activism is sort of the response by uh, companies, which is called off in corporate preparedness. And the question I have is, starting with Sophie, do you believe that corporate preparedness is a fundamental responsibility of boards today? And what do you think they need to do? So I, I would make it corporate preparedness overall. I mean, I wouldn't make it specific to um, uh, shareholder activism, but yes, I mean, that's really the notion of corporate preparedness is really part of the, uh, the board's oversight. Um, and we saw clearly in the COVID again, we saw clearly that uh, within the same industry, uh, different companies fared um, very differently. And so based on that, um, some companies would be more vulnerable to uh, shareholder activism. Um, I think more importantly, we saw that companies were maybe more prepared than others um, on a number of risks in terms of the systemic risk we discussed. So the, I see shareholder activism as a signal, really, that um, the company has a vulnerability or more, um, that um, investors, that investor and maybe other investors feel strongly about. And an activist can derail a company's long-term strategy um, and force the company to allocate resources that it normally would have allocated to running the business um, and executing that strategy. So it was with a, a crisis management situation, um, in my view, the best companies are best served and their boards are best served, really listening to investors and, and their stakeholders to identify some of these vulnerabilities and close the gaps if those vulnerabilities are quite significant and build that trusting relationship between the investors and the company. And that may sound really boilerplate, but listening to what investors have to say is not necessarily as easy as it sounds because there are a lot of things that investors can say in a certain way that don't necessarily go back to and up to uh, the board level, which is another reason that board engagement with investors is so critical um, because the information gets directly brought to the board um, and maybe seeing risks that, um, that in, a, in a different way from a different perspective and hearing them um, from a different perspective. And that adds the preparedness. And once you have that, then you can take action to uh, remediate and reduce those gaps, and I believe being less vulnerable. But once again, the fundamental, to me, the fundamental issue with uh, shareholder activism starts with a vulnerability, and that vulnerability is always a financial vulnerability, always. It's, um, it, it may be tacked on to um, uh, values, it may be tacked on to a culture issue, it may be tacked on to a, um, a corporate governance issue, but fundamentally it is the impact, the financial impact of that company and that the, and the activist is leveraging that to generate more value because they believe that what their actions propose will generate more value. Thanks for that, Sophie. Um, Sasha, sometimes our clients are surprised when we tell them that long investors will listen to activists and will support them. Can you maybe give just a view of situations in which you'd be open to an activist platform? David, we, I mean, I meet, 
Um, I'm involved in three activist campaigns at the moment. Um, activists sometimes have very, very good answers, have done a lot of work, have understood a company and are frustrated with how it's done. Activists doesn't always have to be shouty. And we are sometimes known, even though we run a lot of index funds, we're known as constructivists is my phrase that I'd like to use because we tell companies you haven't done a good job we're going to vote against you and you need to change your chairman sometimes but we do it to the company's face rather than in the newspapers but of course if a company has not done a good job and someone has a good view of how it could do better we will listen to that now we might not listen to all of it we might not like their methods but we would always look at both sides on those things and I'm afraid there are some companies only some that have not done good jobs and have kept management teams for longer than they should do. And I'm afraid this is going to get bigger. And as Sophie said quite rightly, you should be thinking about this anyway. If you're having a tough time, you should be thinking of ways you can explain to the community, have another different type of event, bring the senior independent director, bring the chairs of the committees to explain what it is rather than just bring the chairman, because it might be that the chairman is the issue. And the other investors want to see other people. And maybe sometimes it gets to an activist, that's the other point. It gets there because the company hasn't listened when its long-suffering shareholders have been not listened to. So it can be for many reasons. But there are many times I tell the activists, go away, leave us alone. But I do think that they're using a lot of ESG factors now in their analysis now. So please remember that as a company secretary that the ESG is being used against you, even by activists. Yeah, Sophie. Yeah, just wanted to add to that. Totally agree, and 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 um, I think that's the coalition. The the whole new coalition was originally activists were driven by governance, but again with financial implications. Um, and now they're expanding that to the ESG. And I and one of the reasons is because of that financial data we talked about and all that research that shows there are real financial returns with effective ESG uh, strategy, but also because of the reputational value and the reputational impact. When you have, if a company makes commitments that it doesn't keep, that can have a negative reputational impact and that will translate into share price. And investors are extremely, extremely focused now on, and, sent, and receptive to a lot of these um, ESG concerns. And, and I think the acceleration of that um, is, uh, and that will continue and here to stay. Agree with Sasha entirely. Great. Um, before we go to more general questions, Maureen, is there anything you'd want to add to the activist conversation? I think it's been covered uh, extremely well by others. And I think it, that question brings us back to everything that we've said. We've talked about transparency. We've talked about listening. We've talked about openness. We've talked about diversity. And it's all about the board being prepared to listen, being prepared to think outside the box, being prepared to do something a little bit different and being prepared to listen to others with a different point of view. And I think these are the things that we talked about all day, to be honest, in the last hour. So I think that that question kind of brings everything back together. Well, some interesting points being raised there. And just a reminder that you can download the full report using the link in the description. And whilst I've got you, if you like what you hear, you can hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and you'll be notified each time we release a new episode. Thanks again for listening.